This is 950 Feet Behind, a podcast about women standing out and breaking barriers in the business world. This podcast is brought to you by Outbound. Visit outboundsales.io to create your free account today. My name is Leonor, and I'll be your host for the season. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 950 Feet Behind. Today, I'm here with the LinkedIn top influencer, owner of Engaged Selling Solutions, and author of Right on the Money, the brilliant Colleen Francis. Thank you so much for joining me, Colleen. I am very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is all ours. So I decided to start all these podcasts, as it's been usual on other episodes, with one single question to take us back to the past where it all began. And it is, when you were a little girl, what is the first thing you remember wanting to be when you grew up? Wow. I always thought that I wanted to be a lawyer, of all things. (laughs) But, you know, it's really funny my dad, I have this very strong memory when I was a kid. I grew up in Vancouver, BC, and there was this ad on TV for a furniture store. And he always used to, the, the ad would come on and the father, the older father would introduce his daughter as sort of the next generation. And he'd always say, my daughter, the president. And my dad used to always say that to me. <laughs> I thought it was funny, I guess. And so <laughs> maybe he was setting things in stars to run my own business, I guess. <laughs> Okay, so I wanted to be a lawyer, which actually I, I don't find that different if we think at the core of selling, right? Because sure. lawyers are big salespeople. They're trying yeah. to sell <laughs> their case. Exactly. So there was some commonality there. But yep. then you went on to study uh, public relations and government. Was that it? Uh, yeah, well, politics and history. Yes. So political science and history is what I ended up studying and, you know, I kind of, I, I decided that I didn't want to go into law. I, you know, once I got through high school and through my first degree at university, I, I just, I was itching to get out there and to start doing something. I really did not like the thought of going to more school. Um, and also I didn't, I, you know, I chose, I kind of started to look at the culture of of law firms and the partner structure and, you know, the bar work and all that stuff. It just wasn't appealing to me um, at all. So I chose to go into sales. Okay. And was sales an obvious choice for you? Why sales out of all things when sales um, actually doesn't have probably the best reputation? No, exactly. But, you know, I guess it comes back down to my dad again. He was always in sales. Um, he worked his entire career for one company, a paper manufacturer, paper company. They made envelopes and things like that. And he was in sales as I was growing up. He became a sales manager and then the general manager of his of his branch. And so it wasn't unnatural for me because I grew up in a household that embraced selling, right? I mean, as a kid, everything that I had, every soccer camp I went to, every vacation we took was as a result of my dad's successful sales career. So it didn't have a um, a bad reputation, especially considering he was with one company, right? For that all that long time. So I saw the longevity. At the same time, and probably because you know of my dad's uh, involvement in sales, whenever we had things to sell at school for band camp or soccer camp or whatever, grad he made me go door to door with that. He refused to take that stuff to his work. <laughs> and so I, you know, early on in my in my life, I was knocking on doors, selling chocolate bars, selling whatever it happened to be. That was the season. Um, and so I was, I don't want to say I was experienced, but I, I kind of knew a little bit about uh, how I felt about it, I guess. <laughs> 
And did you like it straight away the first time we went door to door trying to sell a product? I remember being nervous, um, but you know, I uh, it was neighbors um, and I knew them well, so it wasn't that difficult. Um, and once I got the hang of it, then uh, we used to have a lot of fun with it. And based on well, your dad's career was that kind of your dream uh, when you started working in sales that you'd start working for a company and retire there, or did you have other ambitions? I had no idea. <laughs> you know, I I started my career in life insurance and I had a couple of good avatars because I had a very good friend at the time who was in life insurance in the company that I was going to work for. And I saw that he was very successful. I also saw my hiring manager, the branch manager of the um of the agency I was working for also was very successful. And this was a corporate, this wasn't a like um, a franchise or someone who owned, it was a corporate life insurance company um, in Canada, London Life. And so I saw people who did have these long careers and making good money. And so I didn't feel, I, I didn't go into the career thinking I'd want to get out, but I also kind of had no plan for staying for the rest of my life. <laughs> so you're open to whatever the future could bring. Yeah, I guess absolutely. that's the best way to be. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't imagine starting a career in sales, especially in the insurance field, uh, would have been easy. No, it wasn't. It was incredibly hard. And, and in fact, the first six months of my career, I was terrible. The way I was paid, it was a draw against commissions. And so you got paid $2,000 whether you sold anything or not. And if you sold stuff, it went in the bank and you paid the company back. And if you didn't sell anything, you went in the negative. And I was negative $12,000 after six months. I, you know, I, I had to relearn everything, um, even though I had been through some training, of course, with the company. And so it was a very eye-opening experience for me, you know, to be assigned a mentor, uh, to kind of rethink about the way I was doing business, to relearn, and to be in this position where, I mean, while I was lucky enough to have not have student loans coming out of university, I now owed my company, the company I worked for, $12,000, which was not a comfortable place to be. And how did you, in the middle of all that got the strength to get going and, and pursuing that career? I had a very good mentor in my manager. Um, he really believed in me. You know, he also probably was on the hook for that $12,000 if I left. <laughs> so there was a vested interest in him helping me be successful. But I took his advice, you know, to heart. And I really started to emulate what the successful people were doing in, in the office um, and, you know, and clawed my way out of that mess. <laughs> so. And you did get out of the mess? I did. I did get out of the mess. But, you know, in the meantime, I learned that my biggest hang up in that industry, and I really, you know, this is this is very personal. Uh, obviously, a lot of people don't have this, is I wasn't comfortable talking about people's personal money. I didn't like for me, uh, there was just a, a very, it was a difficult conversation for me to have uh, for one reason or another. And I could never get past that, that kind of uncomfortable feeling in myself of sitting down at their kitchen table, you know, talking about the personal side of their finances. So while I did have some success over my three years there, I made the decision to leave the industry. And, and I, I enjoyed the sales interaction. I enjoyed asking for referrals and I enjoyed networking and I enjoyed the actual sales process. I just didn't enjoy the product uh, uh, that I was selling. And then what did you decide to do? So you found a passion and you found something that you didn't like. Yeah. Uh, so what was the next step for you? 
Uh, for me, it was technology. There was a technology boom um, happening in my town of Ottawa, and I was recruited into a software company. And I found, I mean, instantly for me, I realized that it was so much easier. You know, it's, it was so much easier for me to tell a company they needed to spend a million dollars with me than it was to tell an individual they needed to save $50 a month. You know, the transformation in my mindset was was huge. Um, and I recognized that right away. So most, well, actually all of my career until I started my business was all in technology sales. You know, just a couple of different companies, but I really enjoyed, you know, I am not an engineer or, or a tech geek or any of those things, you know? um, but I really enjoyed the process of working with big organizations, helping them solve uh, business problems. Okay, that's very interesting. And you said there was a big boom. So how was it being part of that, you know, cutting edge movement that <laughs> makes technology the center of everything? Well, it was really exciting. You know, I mean, Ottawa is known here in Canada. We, you know, we like to call ourselves Silicon Valley North, right? Um, it's a it's a semiconductor hub. It was a telecom hub. It was, you know, a software hub uh, at the time. We're going back to, you know, 1998, 1999. And so it was fun to be part of that industry because we were growing, right? And um, And getting a lot of attention. And so there was a lot of investment coming here. There was a lot of great talent. And, uh, and it really opened my eyes to, you know, what other businesses were doing um, on a global scale. Okay. And how was the, the female scene in the middle of all of that, <laughs> especially in the sales side, where there are many other women around you? Well, interesting. Um, I, in the industry in general, no. In my company, yes. In fact, all of the sales reps were women because the two founders of our company, who were both men, believed that women made better sales reps than men. Um, they believed we were more empathetic, better able to ask questions, and better multitaskers. <laughs> I think they secretly also believed we would work harder because we might need want to prove ourselves or something. But yeah, we had. Um, I had a fantastic mentor um, as my manager uh, when I first started, and we had great women around us. So I worked in, a, in an interesting environment. Now, we were also selling largely might have been a little different um, from some other tech sales in that we were often selling to women as well um, because we had a special niche market in the area that largely was dominated by women um, in the records management industry. So maybe that played um, part of it. So personally, I never really experienced that being a, you know, a super minority in my work, but I know generally in the tech industry, when we would show up places, there would be very few of us. But that's, Excellent and very different from some of the stories. So it's good to have, for one reason or another, well, a management that believed that women could do the job at least as good as men, if yeah. not better. better. And there's some really key uh, points in what you said, like multitasking, uh, especially now as a working mom, I understand that we do have an amazing ability to yeah. be focused on more Multiple. than one thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, that's very good forward thinking. And you were happy there, right? Yeah. It was a good environment. It was a great environment for me. Um, I learned a lot. 
you know, it was interesting because we were a small startup, um, self-funded. One of the things that our managers did really well instilled in us in was that we just weren't going to travel sort of willy-nilly around because it was expensive and that we really had to learn how to use the phone at the time because video conferencing wasn't really a thing to, to deeply qualify our customers. Because, you know, as, as the owner said, I don't want you to just fly into Houston to have tea with a customer. We've got to go there with purpose, right? <laughs> so I developed both inside and outside sales skills at the same time. Um, And I also um, became a very strong advocate for early on that an inside sales type role could actually take you from lead generation to to close and that you could develop deep levels of trust and sell six-figure, seven-figure projects over the phone without actually meeting people. And I think that was a little different from what other companies were doing at the time where they really had this sort of segmented inside sales or lead generation and field sales, very different positions. But it really gave me a a very well-rounded experience and expertise in selling. Very good. And I'll actually pick that subject up in a couple of minutes. But I want to know, while you were happy, you had a good career. When was the moment in which you decide maybe it's time to move on and start my own business and do my own thing? Yeah, so that's a great question. So what happened is my firm, um, I I started leading the team and I loved leading the team. And we were acquired by a much bigger organization, a publicly traded company. And I became a middle manager in the cog on a, with a specialty product in the cog of, you know, like a, <laughs> of a bigger wheel. And I really didn't enjoy the process of not having a lot of control. I also didn't really enjoy the process of uh, not being able to grow we weight the way we wanted to. And so I decided to leave that company because I wasn't being fulfilled in terms of, of what I thought I was best at and also what I wanted to do. So I went to work for a really new startup because that's exciting to me. I love building. And what happened is it was 2001, I guess. And Cisco made that, you know, announcement that kind of caused the first tech bubble to (laughs) burst. (laughs) The earning is announcement, you know, Sand Hill Road shut down. We didn't get any funding and I was out of a job. And what happened then is I thought to myself, you know, the mistake this company made um, and I had a you know a, a great year with them. Was they hired me way too soon? We didn't really have a product going to market. They were paying a lot of money for an expensive sales VP with no team. And really, what companies should have done? This company is hired me on a part time or a virtual basis. And I realized that even though the tech bubble had popped temporarily, there was this huge need in our local community for uh, virtual VP of sales with tech companies and other. And that's how I started my career. I just said you know what, I'm just going to go out as a VP of sales, virtual. And then it just morphed into companies saying to me, hey, why don't you just teach our VP to do what you do? Why don't you just teach our team to do? And I am an incredibly opportunistic person um, in a positive way. (laughs) And so when those opportunities came around, I just said, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. And so I, I had to learn a lot about consulting and workshops and things on the fly, but it really allowed me to to grow a well-rounded business. Okay. And was it kind of immediate success, like you were saying, were people looking for you straight away? Well, I wouldn't say immediate. I mean, it's pretty easy to start a consulting business without any capital, right? Like when I came home and told my husband I wanted to do that, he said, okay, you know, you need to be able to afford a computer and a and a desk chair. <laughs> right. And so I, you know, I, I was working temporarily for another firm at the time and we agreed to sort of, you know, park my paychecks, um, until I had enough capital to, you know, buy the stuff I needed 
and pay myself for six months because we figured that I wouldn't bring in enough revenue to pay a salary to myself or pay me anything for six months. And so we did that. And then when I quit that job and started my own, I would say it took me about a year. Yeah, I think my first year, by the end of that first year, I had a run rate that was enough to cover you know, a salary for myself. And it probably took three years to get back up to the sort of high level income salary that I was used to as a VP of sales. So, you know, I don't know if that's immediate success or, but it it felt pretty, it felt pretty fine to me, I guess. (laughs) I wasn't worried about it. (laughs) I think it is pretty fine. There's some people say that startups should prepare for 10 years until (laughs) they're more or less stable. So if you made it in three, of the time. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I've kept things very um, lean, right? I never had a design to build a big firm. And so it's always only been my one operations manager. And, you know, now that's Casey, she's been with me for over 10 years. Um, And then when my husband decided that he wanted out of his career, it was coming up to the point where I probably needed some help. And so he decided to join me as well. And now we're partners in the firm. And that's been the way it has been for probably 11 or 12 years as well. Okay. I didn't know that, uh, but I have to ask, how is it having your well life partner and business partner <laughs> together, right? Most people think yeah. it's hard to manage. No, it is. It, you know, it, um, it wasn't always easy. <laughs> you know, I had owned the business and run the business myself for seven years. And so I don't think I realized how much control I had and how hard it would be for me to give that up. So I I will go out on a limb and say the, the challenges we had in our early time working together were largely my issues, not his issues. I had a hard time figuring out how to let go of stuff that I was doing, give it to him and trust that he could do it. Um, and so, you know, that just took some time. But I all, I had to remind myself as well, that having your life partner in your business is actually a huge advantage because you're now working together for the same things, right? As opposed to working separate careers with separate objectives. So that was kind of, I kind of had to remind myself of that. And you have to, you do have to draw some lines, right? I mean, all of my, um, all of my girlfriends who are in these kinds of positions, we all laugh and say like, you've got to, you know, you have to have some rules, right? You know, no talking shop before I've had coffee or no talking shop after a certain point, you know, let's have dinner and not talk about work. Otherwise we don't have kids. Uh, I suppose with kids, it could be a little different, but with, in the absence of having another being in your house that can <laughs> you know, you have to focus on, you can get into work all the time. And that I don't think is good for your personal relationship. Yeah, absolutely. The the ability, even if you don't work with a partner, the ability to create boundaries, especially now in these remote settings, yeah. is something very important because otherwise yeah. you're just working all the time. Your mind's never blank. Absolutely. And that's not healthy. And also you um, mentioned some advantages. And I think well, trust, you need to trust a business partner. And who else can you trust more than your partner, right? If it goes bad, it's bad for both, not only business, but personal life too. Yeah. Well, you learn a lot about your partner. I remember laughing once um, uh, to Chris and saying, man, you're, you're really smart at things. I had no idea you were smart about. (laughs) You're really good at that. But you know, 
there'd be no reason for me necessarily to know what he was really smart at professionally if we had these completely opposite jobs, right? And and didn't talk about it because he is not a salesperson. He's an engineer. So like I had no idea that, you know, the kinds of things he did in his previous work, the details of, you know, his expertise and how that led to, you know, his expertise in product marketing or product management. And so, you know, he would just roll his eyes at me, right? <laughs> but I'm like, I have a deeper appreciation for you now. <laughs> like as a compliment, not as an insult. <laughs> he knew it was a compliment, but it was kind of a funny moment. <laughs> And you've been working in this business, uh, well, you both have been working in this business for quite a while and things are changing. Video calls weren't the thing, now video calls are a day thing. How do you think the face of of sales is changing nowadays? Well, you know, we always, there were certain things that were changing um, even uh, previous to the, you know, the current situation, right? Um, But they have been dramatically accelerated as a result. You know, there were always companies who were, you know, embracing video conferencing. It's actually kind of interesting. I work with a client in um, Syracuse, uh, in sorry, Rochester, New York, and, and they have, they were an early believer in, um, in video conferencing always, you know, because of their location um, and they worked across the U S it was just easier for them. And so they were the thing, probably the first client I first company I ever knew who used things like WebEx or whatever tool it was at the time to interact with their customers. And this was like 15 years ago. So they were always very good at that. And I knew it could work. But it's funny because now what was their competitive advantage is no longer their competitive advantage. And they said that to me the other day, everyone is selling this way. And so our profitability advantage, our competitive advantage of being good at it is actually not good enough. So we definitely saw that change. We are seeing something I love, which is field salespeople really embracing the fact that they can be home more often. It's no longer a badge of honor to just rack up a million miles, um, you know, a year and, and be a road warrior, right? It's now more important. I had a conversation with a sales VP a year ago who said, you know, Colleen, in the last year, I haven't missed a single one of my son's baseball games. And I don't want that to change. It's not going back to the way it used to be. Right. And so we're using this kind of technology in a way that's helping, I think, salespeople be more well balanced. I think it's healthier for us. Um, and I think it's more profitable for companies. Um, and I think it's also it faster. We're, we're able to close more deals because we're able to talk to more people that in a given day than we would have been able to on the road. And you think it will carry on with that trend in the future? Or do you think yeah. there'll be a setback? Well, I thought that there might be a setback. Because when things started to open up, we definitely saw people going back out on the road. But I think now there's been too many bumps in the road, right? Um, I, you know, with the current state of airports and and flight costs, for example, there are companies who are just saying, no, I can't afford to run the risk of you being stranded at an airport for two days. I don't want the expense of you having to go in a day early um, and fly home a day after because we have to have a backup plan. The airfares are, you know, 30, 40, 50% more expensive. So we have actually seen, I just read a study that business travel has sort of capped for the last six months or so. It's um, still 20% less than it was at its peak in 2019. Um, And I think that that's a positive thing. I think it's, and I think the longer it stays like that, the less likely it is to go back up to those levels. Definitely. And following this uh, sales changes uh, trend, I read that you think there is no reason why 100% of a sales team cannot hit 100%. 
of their quota. And I'd like you to tell me a bit more about that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, one thing to, to just um, preface that is, you know, I recognize that you might have new salespeople on the team and there's someone who has like, you know, six months experience might not hit their full quota for the year, right? That's not what I mean, but, but you'll have targets for them as well. I believe that with coaching, you as a sales leader, you should be coaching people to hit 100% of their target or move them out of the organization faster. You know, we we are one of the only professions that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't have 100% requirements. I mean, imagine if your accounting department, if you were able to say, it's okay if you don't collect 100% of the checks that are owed to us. Or you know what? You forgot to send out invoices this month. That's okay, right? You know, you can sit. Imagine if you work for a company that delivers, right? And you've got drivers. How how many times in a row would you let the driver not make their full delivery load in a month, right? You, you know, if they just sat on the side of the road and did nothing, you wouldn't keep them in that job. Yet we are kind of allowed to, to underperform. And so sometimes people don't hit targets because they are set artificially too high and that's unfair. And sometimes they're the wrong fit, but most often it's because managers aren't coaching. And I think it's really important that companies recognize that the biggest reason why the team isn't hitting quota, if the quota is fairly set, is the manager's fault, not the player's fault, not the seller's fault. It's because they're not coaching, improving behavior, um, capturing best practices enough to ensure the team is a success. This is a learned skill. And I've never thought about it that way, but now that you've put it in those words, we, we wouldn't allow a doctor to replace half of a heart. So, sorry. <laughs> and, you know, sport, sports teams are a good example of this, right? A team loses enough, the manager is fired, right? The, the general manager, the coach, whatever. You know, oftentimes that happens before, you know, you don't trade superstar players in order to improve, uh, to make the coach look good. You, the coach leaves. Um, and so I think you need to take a lesson from that, frankly, and realize that the, the coaching staff, which is you as a, as a leader, has the most important role in the sales team hitting their targets. And I have said to many audiences, if the team isn't hitting their targets month over month, that is your responsibility. Like, I'm really sorry, but you got to look inside and realize that's that's on you, not on the sellers first. Absolutely. And that brings me, we're actually almost hitting the 30 minute mark, but okay. I still have two questions to ask you okay. because time flies when we're having yep. fun. And one of them is actually about your book. You seem to know a lot, a whole lot about all the industry. So when did you decide, okay, I know a lot and people need to know this lot. So I'm just going to write not one, but two books. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things that uh, I've been writing uh, articles for years. And, you know, I'll be honest, it's not my favorite thing to do. I much prefer to talk. <laughs> but I recognize that in order to be, you know, to really make a mark in this world, you know, in as a consultant, you do need to have a book. So I put out my first book five or seven years ago, um, which was fantastic. Um, and then this book came around because I started to recognize that things were changing and and people weren't embracing that change. And so I wanted to write a book that really talked about all the changes that were happening and what was coming and, and what to do about it in business to balance this idea of being um, internally focused on the metrics and the things that drive sales and the data and your customer and being a customer-centric organization. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting. And did you enjoy it 
as you <laughs> like speaking more? Did you actually like the process of writing a book or two? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's always going to be uh, a small amount of torture for me, but I tend to, I'll work with a writer to talk them through what I want to say. And then I'll go back after they send me back sort of a draft and, and work through it that way. I find that for me that, I mean, writing is just a thinking process. So it's that for me. Now, that being said, with this book, it was really uh, you know interesting because when I finished Write on the Money, it was um, January of 2020 and I was ready to go to print and we and things fell apart. And I realized I cannot go to print with this book based on what was happening in 2019 because I wrote it in 2019 and the, mark, the world is a totally different place. So I spent the the better part of the year rewriting it based on my clients' experiences of selling successfully in the market that we were in, in uh, 2020, 2021. Well, so you changed the whole concept of the book. Well, I didn't change the core concept. The whole concept of being right on the money, like that, that chapter <laughs> didn't change. But how we executed on being on the right on the money, I would say is 75 percent, maybe 60 to 75 percent different now <laughs> than it was going to be in the original incarnation of the book. <laughs> For someone who doesn't like to write, that does seem like a lot. <laughs> it does, but I was really fortunate during all of this that most of my clients that I was serving at the time were deemed essential services and they had to stay busy and they were busy and they often in many cases had to stay front and center with their doors open, right? I have a lot of clients who couldn't afford to just send everybody home. So I got a real front row seat to what was happening in the marketplace and how the current economic and 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 social, you know, parameters were affecting their businesses. <laughs> spent a lot of time doing therapy with my clients who were just like ah, pulling their hair out literally and, and walking them through what happens when their staff gets sick because they you know had waves of COVID come through and because they were in a live environment so much. But it really gave me a good, a good chance to, to uh, give some examples in the book of things that were happening right up to the minute successful, successfully so that people could embrace that and use it today. And is there any common like key attribute of businesses that were successful in that time that you think is very important for us all to learn from? Being flexible and adapting to change. So I don't believe, you know, I don't believe that we're going to go back to the old way, nor do I believe that there's going to be like a wholesale change and we're never going to see anyone again. But the best sellers are really able to adapt. Um, they're incredibly empathetic to their customer's um, current situation. And so one minute they're in front of a customer face-to-face, the next minute, they're hosting a perfectly executed web call, sometimes even from their car, right? If they have to, but you know, they're, the flexibility, uh, the, they, they have flexibility to be able to take a call that says, client says, hey, we can't see you. So-and-so is sick or we're not accepting visitors. Can we transition to our platform? And they're comfortable on every platform. They're also, they become unafraid to talk about things that their competition is refusing to talk about and finding new ways to build value into their products. So for example, clients of mine in the industrial space have started talking about how they, the benefit to doing business with them is employee safety because, you know, one supplier, you don't have multiple people on site, you know, things like that, that you just, you would never have thought to include that in your value proposition yet value propositions for my clients have really expanded to be um, more operational as opposed to that sort of narrow focus, which I think is a huge benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And I just have one last question to ask. 
before we completely run out of time. And I know you've had an amazing experience quite from the beginning, being a woman in sales and in the corporate industry, but, and support from your family, right? Your partner is your business partner. Uh, But there's quite a lot of women who are not that lucky. Uh, What would you say to those women who are trying to get a career in sales and society still thinks it's not for them? I think that they need to find a mentor inside their own company. It doesn't even have to be a woman in sales, but I think finding a successful, you know, leader in their own company that they that can talk that can be a mentor in business, I think is important. Or they need to find a mentor, you know, in sales um, in their community, maybe in a totally different industry, but someone that they can that they can bounce ideas off of, someone that they can and that they want to emulate. I think that uh, you know, taking control of your professional development, something I've always believed in, um, and is also going to be really helpful for any woman, any person really, but women especially who might not have those mentors or avatars or support around them. Absolutely, and I can't think of a better way to end the episode than with that brilliant advice. Again, thank you so much uh, for joining me, Colleen. It's been a lovely conversation. And as for our listeners, don't forget to tune in next week, where I'll be joined by multi-potentialite and LinkedIn sales star, Alexis Scott. I'll see you all there.